Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, to this episode, I met Ellen Lane, partner at Atwan Ventures, which is a forward-thinking venture capital firm dedicated to investing in early-stage companies that leverage disruptive deep technology to challenge traditional industries while significantly reducing their environmental impact. Ellen's journey undertakes a transformation from a conventional finance career to a purpose-driven She began investment banking and private equity, later realizing the need for meaningful work. She completed an MBA before dedicating eight years to microfinance in Africa. Witnessing the interwined challenges of climate change and social impact in vulnerable regions fueled her passion for climate tech and venture capital. Ellen's commitment to climate justice, equitable resource allocation, and investment in emerging markets reflect her deep sense of responsibility to address climate change, impact on underserved population, and the planet, making her journey an inspiring example. The conversation then delves into Ellen's unique insight and experience within the climate tech sector, offering a glimpse into the innovative solutions regarding mining technologies to ensure the sustainable supply of critical minerals, its challenges and opportunities, plus the geopolitical considerations. Stay tuned to gain valuable insight into the exciting world of climate tech, mining technologies, and sustainable investing. The second part of the show, Ellen gives tips for founders who are fundraising and shares the best way to stand out and catch investors' attention. Ellen also shares how carving out time for yourself is essential to succeed. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with At One Ventures. 
a VC firm which has the mission to invest in companies with early stage disruptive deep tech that has the potential to disturb established industries while dramatically reducing their footprint on the planet or pioneering sectors that are actively regenerative. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So that's the tradition on the on the show. Before we start, can you give us a 30 second introduction about At One Ventures? Sure. Well, you covered it pretty well already, so you kind of did my job for me. But we invest in a world to um, to catalyze a world where humanity is net positive to nature. We like to use the term net positive and get people away from the term net zero because net zero is not enough. Um, even absolute zero is not enough. We need to both abate all of our ongoing emissions as well as draw down our historic emissions. And so therefore humanity actually needs to have a net positive footprint and impact to the planet. And then we do that through everything you just described. So investing across all industries and with a global mandate in seed and series A companies, um, early stage technologies, often deep tech, basically trying to recreate the way industries are done because industries were never created to be sustainable in the first place. And so you cannot incrementally improve them to achieve this goal. You basically have to wipe the slate clean and create new ways of doing everything. So let's start from the, from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? As I always say in the show, we like humans more than their resume or position uh, on LinkedIn. So what are you passionate about? I mean, what do you do besides working on supporting and investing in, uh, in founders? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, who is Ellen? Yeah. So... Basically, I used to be a very run-of-the-mill vanilla finance person, you know, kind of sold my soul to the devil, was in investment banking, doing mergers and acquisitions, that did private equity after that, um, always very commercially driven and profiteering, making rich people richer all the time. Like many people in those industries, I also got tired of that <laughs> after a few years, and so wanted to pivot into something more purpose-driven, more meaningful. Um, did that through an MBA and transitioned to Africa. I always tell people to be careful what you wish for because two weeks after I graduated from my MBA program, I found myself with me in my suitcase in Uganda um, at my new job, <laughs> looking around thinking, oh, I maybe have overcompensated just a little bit here. <laughs> and that ended up being the beginning of eight of the most wonderful years of my life um, where I was working in microfinance, in Africa, in six countries on the continent, living in Uganda, working in Congo, Malawi, Nigeria, Tanzania, and Zambia, um, and providing banking services to low-income populations as a means of alleviating poverty. Um, and so it was a wonderful time. We did a lot. We failed a lot. And we also did a lot, which I think is the hallmark of you know, fighting a fight that's worth fighting, right? It's, it's hard. Um, and so you you end up having as, as many failures as successes, maybe more failures. Uh, and after eight years, while it was a really fulfilling time, I just came to realize how fraught with inefficiency and bureaucracy the whole international development scene is, um, both at like governmental level, institutional level within my own company. You know, we were a 12,000 employee organization in 23 countries and four continents and a headquarters in Washington, D.C., so really convoluted decision-making, took ages to get anything done. Um, and so I realized if I wanted to continue making a big impact in the world, there were probably 
more efficient ways to do it. And in industries where my effort to try and make an impact could be amplified more rather than held back by bureaucracy and, and inefficiency. And was very fortunate at that time to meet Tom, our founder and managing partner of At One. Um, he had a wonderful vision for not just wanting to try and combat climate change, but the how. I'm a big person on how you get things done, right? Because we all strive at the same what of trying to fight climate change, but the how you go about doing it, right? Do you go about it with a diverse team and diverse founders? Do you go about it by thinking about the science and the economics at the same time? Do you go about it in a way that still takes social impact into consideration so you don't have negative side effects on people as much as possible, right? Do you do it by treating people in an equitable way? Um, all of these things, right, are part of the, the how, because um, you can obviously go about it the wrong way as well and greenwash and not take people into account and all of that. So I was really inspired by his vision and decided to join up with him. And he and myself and Lori, a third partner, we basically kicked everything off in February, 2020. Um, and it's been a, a wild ride ever since. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for sharing all of that. Um, maybe just one thing more on the personal note, like what are you passionate about? Hmm. Well, I mean, aside from just liking to tackle really big challenges like alleviating poverty in Africa and saving the planet from climate change, um, I, I love the ocean. Uh, fun fact, the ocean is actually my middle name. Um, so when, when people say, I love danger, danger is my middle name. And like, it's, it's actually true. When I say, I love the ocean, the ocean is my middle name. <laughs> Um, my parents met on the beach. They named me after the ocean and my Chinese name. Um, I grew up basically everywhere in the world next to the ocean. I'm an avid scuba diver. Um, I love wreck dives, like shipwrecks, plane wrecks. I love shark dives. Sharks are some of the most misunderstood animals, I think, in the world. They're actually like these beautiful, amazing creatures, and people are just scared of them and they think they're all aggressive and violent. But actually, the vast majority of species of sharks are not, right? It's maybe only like the great white and like a few other sharks that are aggressive, but most species are not. And they're actually just these beautiful, like really elegant, you know, animals that that just move in these amazingly elegant ways. Um, so yeah, if I if I had my choice, I would spend most of my life underwater with, with animals like that. <laughs> And that's why we need to protect uh, the oceans uh, as well, that's for sure. So thanks so much for sharing uh, the, and uncovering a little bit more this uh, personal side of you as well. So going back to uh, your uh, your old journey here, I mean, if you could like tell us a little bit more on this work-life experience that you uh, you had before and prior, uh, you know, starting at One Ventures uh, as a partner, I mean, what did you learn during that journey? Maybe if you have one or two pieces of uh, experience uh, that you could share, and reflect on that in a way gave you an edge to uh, to join or start a firm. Yeah. Um, so I would say that being scared of doing something new is okay. <laughs> um, I was really scared for sure. Uh, when I embarked upon the whole Africa journey, I was 
equally as scared um, embarking upon the at one journey. It was a hard pivot going from working in social impact and microfinance in Africa to trying to fix climate change using venture capital. Uh, it was a very hard pivot. <laughs> and um, basically I think the mindset shift that I needed to undertake to be okay with it was to realize that even if I made an attempt at a new thing and it didn't work out that the learnings were still valuable and that I wouldn't be somehow labeled like failure, you know, on my forehead for the rest of my life, which was the fear. Um, and I think conquering that and being okay with that as a potential outcome is what then allowed me the, the courage to, to take the step forward. And I think this is particularly true for women um, there are statistics out there to say that um, generally, on average, a man will take on a new job if he feels something like 60% qualified, and a woman will only take on a new job when they feel 100% qualified. So I felt maybe only 80% qualified for this job before I decided to take it. And therefore, you know, I was basically like, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't. I'm only 80% qualified. Um, and hearing statistics like that one, and also just talking to a bunch of amazing mentors and advisors, um, you know, I, I managed to kind of get to the other side of that mindset to realize that, oh, actually that 20% is just something that I could take on as a learning. And then even if I don't continue doing it, it's still very enriching. And it's not just about being called a failure or something at the end of the day. Um, that would probably be my number one life lesson. <laughs> Thank you. So, looking a little bit uh, prior, we, we dive into the more the mining uh, industry as a sub uh, category of the, the climatic ecosystem as we decided to cover that together. I like just to understand this this last uh, last part of it. I mean, you mentioned in your um, initial uh, career life, you're working uh, in finance, trying to make the rich richer, as you mentioned, and you get uh, tired and and. And, and, and part of that and it's okay, we need change. I need change. I'm going to do an MBA. Then you move to a, uh, this whole journey in, uh, in Africa. And then this move into, uh, into climate in itself. What has been, in a way, your uh, driver? Uh, is it the, the meeting that you had with Tom? Or is it really like something more on the personal? We'd like to understand a little bit, like, what was the, mm. the flame to re-jump into this uh, uh, clean or no uh, so-called uh, climate tech uh, industry and really, like, uh, you know, tackle that problem at, uh, at, at the biggest level? Yeah, it was definitely related to the work I was doing in Africa, where like I said, you spend all this effort trying to improve people's livelihoods. Um, and then you just feel like there's all these macro forces that are working against you. And some of them are man-made like governments and bureaucracy and a company and stuff like that. But you definitely also see uh, that these populations are the ones that are gonna be affected by climate change first and the most severely. So people talk about this concept of climate justice and the just transition a lot. And I'm a big proponent of that, which is for only 4% of global greenhouse gases that come from Africa, as an example. So they've actually done, and other emerging markets in the global south are very similar in terms of having actually a very low contribution to global greenhouse gases today. So that means they've done the least to contribute to the problem. And yet they will be the first to feel the most catastrophic effects because there are a lot of smallholder farmers, 
right? People that, you know, basically maintain a really small farm and that's their only livelihood. And with rising sea levels, these are the farmers that are gonna get it washed out first, right? And lose like the small amount of income that they make today. And that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> um, and it's again, one of these macro forces, but it was one that at least I felt like I could do, try to do some work to do something about, right? And I might not be able to change a bureaucratic government or a bureaucratic company as much, but I can go work in DC and invest in technologies to fight climate change, right? And in our firm, um, I lead our emerging markets strategy and thinking. And so I definitely am constantly pushing this agenda of, you know, we have to also invest in emerging markets. We cannot call ourselves investors to save the planet, but then only invest in like two continents on the planet, right? US, Europe, like North America and Europe. Um, that, that just it feels disingenuous, especially when you think about like the whole climate justice point. Um, I don't think it would be a majority of our investments, but it should at least be representative of the contribution today. So 4% if it's Africa. And then you also have to be forward looking because when you compound the effects of growth rates of population, which will be disproportionately higher um, in a lot of the global South, compounded with a growing middle class and industrialization, that contribution to global greenhouse gas is definitely going to increase, right? In the next 10 to 20 years. So you can't just look at the 4% today, it has to be you know, forward looking as well. And when you stir all that together, that was really kind of my sweet spot of what propelled me into thinking, this is the way I can actually make a bigger difference and actually have a hand in the fight against something that feels like this big macro you know, force, but it is something we actually can do something about. So let's take a, a zoom out and, uh, and take a step back at the uh, mining industry in general and how can we ensure a sustainable supply of those uh, critical minerals that uh, we need. Um, I mean, what are the challenges and opportunities? I mean, why does it matter in the in the climate context? So as I always say, it's such an important topic and as often it sounds like it's a hate and love relationships that uh, people have with uh, the mining industry. I mean, despite the fact that... Uh, we all know we need those minerals uh, to empower the electrification, decarbonization of our economy. So maybe you can start by giving to the audience uh, more like the, the macro view. So your overview of the of the current situation in terms of uh, the impact that uh, the mining industry at large has and its contribution to the GHG emissions and, and the landscape uh, degradation in itself. I mean, what are the, the trends and, and, and projection uh, in the near future uh, based on this growing demand that you, that you see? I mean, this will help to uh, the audience to understand uh, a bit better the magnitude of the of the problem. So if you could have like, you know, share some data points uh, to frame the context with uh, this more macro approach. Yeah, totally. So, there's a few different things at play here that, that have a little bit of complexity. So one is of course, we're trying to push the world to this clean, renewable future, right? But what does that actually require? It requires that we introduce renewables at scale. Um, renewables themselves require a lot more critical minerals than our traditional way of fossil fuel powered energy. So that's a bit ironic in some ways, right? Um, so for example, 
an onshore wind plant requires nine times more mineral resources than a gas-fired power plant, right? So it's actually much more intensive on the critical minerals side. Now, the good side of that, of course, is you can, once you build that wind plant, it is renewable. So unlike the gas-fired power plant, once you burn up that gas, it's gone, right? And once you, and while the mineral intensity is higher for something like a wind plant, once you build it, you can obviously use it over and over again. So, so it's very, but it, but the intensity of building is what we're facing in the next decade, especially because our traditional forms of extracting and processing and producing the refined versions of these minerals has not been innovated upon for decades, maybe centuries. Um, and so it was never built for sustainability. It was never built. It was never built to extract this scale of resource either. So another fun fact, since 2010, the average amount of minerals needed for a unit of power generation has increased by 50%. Um, again, transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, similarly, if you look at something like transportation, a typical EV, an electric vehicle or car, requires six times the mineral inputs of a conventional internal combustion car, right? And these are all the things that we're trying to push, like clean energy, clean transportation, like all of that. Um, so then you have both a supply issue, quantity, and you also have a quality issue. If you look at all of the known reserves that are what they call exploitable, meaning that they're actually practically able to be mined today, and then that's kind of your supply graph, right? And then you look at the demand forecast for, you know, various minerals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, aluminum, copper, right? The lines always go like this. <laughs> and there's this very scary kind of like widening gap for like every single one of those minerals, no matter what version of what forecast you, you look at. Um, so that's the quantity issue. And then on the quality side, people are talking a lot about a degradation in the quality of ores because we're just overmining things. And that's just what happens. It's kind of like when you overfish the oceans and fishermen talk about, oh, you used to have fish this big and now you get fish this big because we're overfishing the oceans. We're not giving them time to replenish. It's like any natural resource. And so we've so overmined a lot of these resources that now the only ores that we're getting out are starting to really decrease in quality. So between the quality issue and the quantity issue, both. Both of those really point to the fact that you really just need some innovation and some new technologies to be introduced um, to be able to basically extract in a more sustainable way and to be able to extract from lower quality ores, which are increasingly all that are gonna be available. Um, and when I say extract in a more sustainable way, Yes, it's about carbon intensity, but there's all these other forms of impact as well, right? Because they're clearing land and they're drilling into the ground and they're doing all this. So there's land use impacts for deforestation. There's biodiversity impacts for what they do when they kind of clear out the natural ecosystem to set up a mine. Um, there's water intensity. So that one's often underappreciated where a lot of these minerals require a ton of water to, to run the process to, to do the, the production of them. And therefore it's putting a real strain on a lot of regions that are already suffering from water scarcity and will only increasingly suffer from water scarcity. Um, pollution, of course, would be the last one. So 
when we then look at what should we do about this, we kind of segregate the value chain, which we can dive into in a second if you want. Um, and from there, we look at what are the opportunities within, okay, here's the mining step, here's the processing step, here's the refining step, and here's the end of life, um, and hopefully recycling after end of life kind of step. What are the impacts in each of those steps on water, uh, air, soil, biodiversity, which are our four impact verticals that we look at and at one? And how are those being driven from what we call a physics fundamentals approach? So what are you using in terms of matter and energy moving through space and time? And anything that we can then do from a technology perspective where you get a win on the physics fundamentals of matter and energy moving through space and time, that should therefore have a knock-on effect to also drive positive impact in air, water, soil, and biodiversity. So that's kind of like our high-level framework that we apply to every sector, but certainly in mining, um, it, it works quite well. Thank you so much. Very, uh, very complete uh, overview. So now that we get a, a better understanding of the this overall context, probably we can go a little bit deeper in the, into that uh, that framework that you uh, that you just shared uh, with us and try to maybe if you could pinpoint like some low hanging fruits, uh, you know, solution or alternative uh, to some problems that uh, you saw uh, uh, or you see in this uh, in this value chain, and then. Maybe let's look at um, what are the most the, the more difficult uh, part of that value chain that uh, requires like new innovation that you might have seen upcoming but not there yet into the market. I mean, what which part of the the mining industry in a way is very uh, complicated to uh, or I would say more than just the mining industry really out of that value chain where are the difficult uh, part extremely challenging that requires like maybe more investment, more research, more alternatives in itself. So let's yeah. split that in two parts. Let's go for what you see today and where uh, the challenge uh, is, uh, is, uh, is there. Yeah, totally. Um, so maybe this is a bit counterintuitive, which I think is worth mentioning, but actually some of the most carbon intensive steps, if you're just zeroing in on, on carbon impact first, instead of the water and the other impacts, most of the carbon intensity actually comes from the processing step of a lot of the, the metals and minerals and not as much from the extraction step. I think you have higher biodiversity and land use and those kinds of impacts on the mining step, but for carbon intensity, it's, it's the processing, right? And that's because just the processing tends to be really energy intensive. So a lot of these metals, um, not all of them, but a lot of them still use like pyrometallurgy, which you might figure out from the name means they use like some kind of thermal energy. So a process maybe like smelting or sintering or right, something like that. It, it just involves a lot of heat. And the second you have a heat intensive step, right? It's going to have a really high energy footprint and then it's going to be really carbon intensive. Um, and heat is also really hard because it's it's thermal energy, it's not electric energy, right? So it would, it's not, you can't even power it with renewables. I mean, I guess you could, you could get renewable electricity and convert that into thermal energy, but you lose a lot of energy and along the way it's, it's inefficient. And so thermal energy specifically can be quite difficult. We've seen some players, for example, um, in steel, 
Um, there's like Boston Metal, which is a, a very large, well-known company. They have an interesting tech where they try to electrify the process of making steel first. And then that enables you to then use renewable energy to power. The issue is, is they electrified it, but they did not manage to lower the energy requirement of producing the steel. And so this is why we use our framework of matter and energy moving through space and time. Because if you boil things down to those science fundamentals and you say, how many kilowatt hours of energy does it take you to produce a kilogram of steel? And whether that's a kilowatt hour of thermal energy or a kilowatt hour of electrical energy doesn't really make a huge difference to me, except that you can power electrical energy more easily with renewables. What matters to me is just the intensity of it, right? Like the sheer just magnitude of it. And when you do some back of the envelope math on Boston Metal, and if you were to assume a vision of the future where all of the steel in the world were produced using Boston Metal's technology, the amount of renewable energy infrastructure that you would need to build to power that because they didn't actually bring down the energy intensity, they just electrified it, would basically like cover half the planet, right? And like solar wind farms and whatnot. I mean, I'm exaggerating that part of it, but it's, it would be a lot. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so, and, and this is why you got to boil all those things back right, to those fundamentals. So instead, right, we need to find things that actually lower the energy footprint and, and, and the energy intensity and not just electrify it so you can power it with renewables or some, you, maybe you do a combination of those two, but you can't just electrify is the point, right? Um, the other thing I would say is if you're using pyrometallurgy, then how do you go about lowering the energy intensity? Well, there is other forms of metallurgy. There's hydrometallurgy that uses water. There's salvometallurgy that uses chemicals like solvents and reagents. There's pros and cons, right, to all of those. Now with hydrometallurgy, you may bring down the thermal energy footprint, maybe even the electric energy footprint, but now you're going to have this like high water consumption intensity kind of issue. So if you're in a water scarce region, that's not great either. So it's sort of, you know, you fix one problem with the carbon intensity, you create another problem with water, possibly. Uh, metallurgy with reagents, okay, not as much thermal energy, not as much water intensity, but now you're using all these caustics, right? You have like your acids and like all these things. And so are you going to be able to, they're expensive. And by the way, uh, the production of a lot of these chemicals also has a carbon footprint because it takes heat to create the chemical reactions to make the chemicals. So that life cycle analysis sometimes doesn't look great either, right? And if you're not recovering and recirculating these solvents, now suddenly it doesn't actually look as great as you might think. So there's pros and cons, like I said, there's challenges to like every single approach, but the point is, is like to look at every one right, in this kind of physics and science and financial fundamentals like kind of way. Um, and that's what gets you to those insights of where the real opportunities are. So maybe just like, and, and thanks for really pinpointing those like really area where it's excessively difficult and where there's always this, uh, this balance. Uh, so if you take like more the, what would be the law hanging forth in this all value chain? And I think like the, the processing, uh, I think that was uh, super interesting to hear that the focus, in fact, uh, it's it's really uh, it's really there at least and more important than uh, the extraction process in itself. So what would be maybe in the processing uh, part of it, like 
the low hanging fruit where you see existing technology that could have already like a, a real impact and maybe an impact uh, first on on carbon emission uh, because I think that's where mm. uh, climate change is uh, is is fuel, fueled uh, there. I think all the others are super important and goes hand to hand. But we also have like this uh, heating, overheating uh, uh, challenge. So uh, where do you see uh, a low-hanging fruit solution there? If any- yeah, so of the three kind of branches of metallurgy that I just outlined, I think we've been seeing the most promising potential solutions in, in the salvo metallurgy space. Um, so getting people away from, from the smelting and the, the thermal energy power processes, which are, are the most traditional ones, um, because at least when you're doing things with chemicals and reagents, you know, you, you have a chance of figuring out how to recycle them and, and reuse them. And, and, and so there's a credible, I'm not saying anyone's cracked it hundred percent yet, but at least there's a, a slightly more believable pathway there that you could figure that out, right. Um, after a little more, more R and D. So we've seen a number of companies doing that, and that does feel like it's probably the most viable path so far in in processing, I would say. You also see, um, obviously, the production methods for different minerals are are very different. Um, In lithium, for example, most lithium today is extracted from brine streams, so not hard rock. I mean, there's some from hard rock, but actually majority of lithium comes from a brine, like a watery kind of salt, salty brine. Um, a lot of it's in South America and like the salt flats and it's incredibly archaic. So they actually put them in these shallow salt ponds and just let them evaporate the water out in the sun for 12 to 18 months, right? And that's that's how it's just been done <laughs> for, for ages. And then once that evaporates the water out it then obviously concentrates the remaining you know, particulate matter that's in there. And then they basically start plying it with chemicals and solvents and stuff to precipitate out the stuff they don't want and then separate out the stuff that they do want, i.e. the lithium. So very, very old ar- archaic methodology. So there, you know, there are a number of companies that are trying to do direct lithium extraction now where you don't have to do the evaporation of 12 months. Um, you don't need to use as many of the, the chemicals for the precipitation. You can use maybe a membrane. Right. And the membrane, if it has the right selectivity, which is a lot of where the deep tech kind of comes in, is how do you actually get the membrane to have that kind of selectivity? Is it through ion exchange? Is it through um, adjustable pore size through a metal organic framework? Is it through, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, there's all kinds of, is, is it more of an adsorbent, you know, instead of a membrane? And, and so there's, there's all these different kind of deep tech things that that people are playing with to try and, and get that to work. Um, and that's because lithium is extracted from from a brine, right? Um, for, for more of the hard rock like ore type things, that's when you get more into like the, the smelting and the, the pyrometallurgy and, and those kinds of things. So I think there's different solutions for different minerals. And in our view, there are a number that feel viable. Um, we've invested in a few. Um, we'll, we'll see, (laughs) but it's going to take probably, as you say, the mining industry is not exactly known to be agile and quick with adopting innovation. And so it will be some years before we see some of these new technologies really take root and be adopted 
by by the the mining companies to to really take off at a commercial scale. Yeah, and I guess there is always this uh, challenge of the the green premium. Uh, you know, why should we pay more if we can do uh, uh, the same the same as before for the for a cheaper price? So oh, just like yeah, we don't believe in green premiums, by the way. I um I yeah, I should maybe just say that we <laughs> we only look at things and we only believe that things are going to work if they have a, a credible chance of achieving price parity or cheaper than the incumbent technology because of the mentality you just described. Yeah, and that uh, makes total sense. Otherwise, you don't have a, a business viable in the, in the long run. Uh, that's, uh, that's for exactly. sure. So taking more like a, a macro approach and, and stepping back uh, a little bit, like could tell us, according to you, what are the U.S. advantages and weaknesses in regard to uh, innovation uh, and that could lead in a way to this uh, uh, mining sector becoming more of fully sustainable in uh, in the long term. I mean, how do you compare maybe US versus China and the, and the rest of the EU? Do you see yeah. like different patterns there? Yeah. Um, geopolitical factors are such uh, such an increasing variable in things now. So interestingly, the resources of critical minerals worldwide are much more geographically concentrated than fossil fuel resources, right? So this is a new risk um, of geopolitical risk and geographical concentration, largely in China, as, as you, I think, were kind of going in that direction. Um, so even if the resources are, are spread out globally, a lot of the processing still happens in China. And so you look at like cobalt, it's mined, whole nother problem with how cobalt is mined. It uses child labor in the Congo. It's, it's really terrible, dirty business. The point being it's mined in the Congo and then they ship it to China for processing. Same with lithium, right? It's extracted from those brine streams and the salt lakes and everything in South America. And then it's shipped to China for processing. So you also obviously have a massive carbon footprint with all that transport and logistics of shipping like, you know, boatfuls of these like heavy minerals and metals like halfway across the world just to get processed in China. And so I think there's also an important consideration on how do you not only come up with processing technologies that reduce you know, matter, energy, space, and time, but how do you have innovations that can collapse steps in the supply chain? And then that will then reduce the vulnerability to this geopolitical risk and the geographical concentration and reliance on, on all the processing being done in China. Um, so if, for example, lithium needs to get to either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide to be able to be used for, for batteries and things like that. Um, and it's getting the raw mined lithium into that carbonate or hydroxide form, that, that's the step that often, part of that step is, is what, what often happens in China. So again, what if there was a technology where you could extract it from the brine stream more efficiently and have it then end up all in one continuous process at a lithium carbonate on the same site? Right, or, a or lithium hydroxide on the same site without needing to then ship it up to China for processing and come back. Right, That is obviously a fundamental cost and environmental impact win. 
Um, and so these are definitely some of the things that we that we look at. And I think that's where other markets like the US and Europe might have an advantage because there is such a robust innovation and kind of startup ecosystem and climate tech ecosystem in those markets. Um, is I think people are thinking about that the right way and they do recognize those pain points and that they need to figure that out. Um, so we, we do see some technologies in those markets as well that are starting to also tackle that consolidation of supply chain issue. So looking at more like the, the regulation aspect uh, of it to kind of move again towards a more sustainable industry, I mean, what are the major constraints that you have identified for, for cleaning up the, the mining industry? I mean, do you see any major roadblock? Uh, is it like a need of new policies to be put in place? I mean, maybe this lack of international coordination and, and funding as we were already starting to, to cover, uncover a bit. Uh, I mean, what needs to happen to accelerate the movement and in which timeline does it sound realistic to you? I mean, you are mentioning also uh, technology that might take years or decades uh, to, to be on the, on the market. So we need more pressure on the regulatory uh, aspect of it. Uh, what is missing? What should be in place? Or it's more like uh, international coordination. I mean, what's your what's your quick view on that? I know it's a large, large topic, probably uh, the, the length yeah. of an episode in itself. <laughs> um, I mean, regulation could always be more fast moving. And so I think that that is certainly true. There is some that's being rolled out now um, in you know a lot of countries globally where you know they're they're rolling out stricter environmental standards for mining that will probably eventually push those mining companies to have to adopt more sustainable technologies because they won't be able to meet the new regulatory standards with their existing technologies. Um, you know, there's there's different permitting regimes where you just won't even be able to get a permit, right? If you're not kind of meeting the new standards, um, due diligence obligations, and um, you know, a, more of a mandate to try and force people to go more global with their supply chains of these minerals rather than only relying on these concentrated few countries like China. So there's some of it going on. It could be more. I don't know if I see that as being the main driver. Um, honestly, I think capital is still a really big bottleneck. Um, I'm not just saying that because I'm a VC and I'm an investor and that's what I do, but I do have a front row seat to just how woefully undercapitalized um, a lot of these innovative companies are. You've probably heard a lot of people talk about the valley of death, right? Um, where you're a company that you're too, you get to a certain stage and you become too late stage for the early investors like at one, but you're still too early stage for the later stage investors like your growth equity stage, private equity investors. And you're also too early stage for debt, like project financing. So as a clearer example, let's say you are an innovative mining tech kind of company and you want to build your first commercial scale production plant. Now, if it's your first commercial scale production plant, by definition, that means that you're pre-revenue. It's your first production plant, right? You can't produce anything without a plant, um, but it's a production plant. So you probably need to raise a significant, like $10 million, maybe $20 million to build that plant. That's the valley of death, right? And we, we see that up and down every sector, you know, everything that's like hardware, capital intensive, which is the vast majority of what climate tech needs to be, right? 
suffers from this problem. Um, if you're raising 10 to 20 million, you're too large and late stage of a round for a VC like us to be able to support you anymore. But you're raising the 10 to 20 million to build that first production plant. So your pre-revenue, those private equity players and the debt players won't even look at you because you're pre-revenue. Right. So we just we need like a significant set of solutions to bridge that gap. It might be government funding, some kind of like bucket of grant funding. It might be, I don't know, something else. We're we're in the midst of trying to support a lot of companies and figuring that out right now. Yeah, I, I see you. I mean, I feel like the the grants uh government funding are coming at the R&D stage in the lab, and then there is this uh, VC uh, funds chipping in, and then later stage is less and less chipping in uh, because it requires more uh, more capital, and and the, the return of the fund will be uh, will be impacted there. But then there is this gap, and this is very interesting, and I believe like might have like the need of especially on the the climate tech uh, technology per se, which is you know, trying to solve such an important uh, problem. And again, like uh, public sector, maybe supporting, uh, finding new mechanism to finance uh, this kind of like innovation that's still very risky. But anyway, I think that's a, that's yeah. a different topic. I'd like to, to get your uh, insight on, on this, uh, to close this section. We're a bit uh, on the uh, end of the, the life cycle of this, uh, of this mineral uh, value, value chain. I mean, can you give us a little bit of uh, your perspective in terms of uh, this uh, recycling or reuse uh, opportunities? I mean, what is the current situation uh, in terms of uh, uh, what is uh, all of those you know minerals that you find? And let's use maybe the the, the battery uh, per se. What is reused? What is recycled? Uh, how good are we or bad are we uh, today in terms of? Uh, uh, Reinjecting in this more like circular manner, uh, this uh, do, do, those very uh, precious minerals that uh, we put so much uh, uh, capital and effort and, and and resource to extract from the from the ground and and and, and treat in itself and process. Do you see like today there is already some uh, change happening? Do you see opportunities? Do you see uh, companies that are worth to look at, uh, or there is still like a huge gap? And again, uh, you see some opportunities for emerging companies to to jump into? There's definitely a lot of opportunity. Um, not surprisingly, some of the metals that the world is, I wouldn't say the best, but just like has the highest recycling rates of are the most expensive ones, right? So gold is like recycled, like almost 90%. Platinum is recycled like 60%, you know? Um, they're really high value. And so people have the incentive and the motivation to go and recycle them. Increasingly so, your other, you know, kind of battery grade minerals will probably start to add to that list as the virgin resources dwindle and therefore the, the prices start to increase. But as of today, you know, we only recycle about 50% of copper. We recycle 40% of aluminum. Um, Cobalt is about 30, 35%. So those are those are pretty low. Um, and again, I think technology has a role to play there. Um, interestingly, in what we've seen, some of the technologies that are good at recovering um, minerals from like end of life electronics and things like that can also be used to recover metals and minerals from low grade ores. 
So tackling that problem I mentioned earlier of why people are seeing the quality of ores uh, degrade recently, um, there might be a solution that could address both the low quality ore problem and the end of life recycling problem with with one one technology that's you know maybe modified a bit for different those two different use cases. So that would that's certainly a big opportunity area that we have looked at a, a lot and, and see some promise in. Um, aside from that, I think there is also just a reverse logistics problem, plain and simple. So you think about like EVs. Okay, let's say you want to recycle all of the lithium-ion batteries that are in electric vehicles. Well, first you got to go collect all those end-of-life electric vehicles and aggregate them somehow, right? And that's already a pain, <laughs> like right there. So even just setting up like the reverse logistics infrastructure to collect all these end-of-life things—that's task number one. Then you got to have the technologies to be able to actually do the recycling in that you know physics fundamentals kind of way where it's economically viable. And to the unit economics we mentioned earlier, the outcome has to be, if it's batteries, you know, a cathode material that is price parity or cheaper than virgin cathode material, <laughs> right? So it's, it's a lot of <laughs> a lot of requirements all stacking up. But it's but we we do think people will get there. We have invested in battery recycling, um, and they do actually have unit economics that that look like they're there with. Uh, right there at parity or cheaper with, with virgin cathode material. Um, so it can be done, um, but it's, it's, it, it takes a lot of, <laughs> a lot of R and D and a lot of iteration, I think for people to get there. Um, so reuse, I think you mentioned is another thing too. Second yeah. life batteries are also kind of interesting. So um, automotive batteries for EVs, have to be some of the highest quality because obviously you can't have them fail while a car is in motion, right? In the really worst case. And so the, the producers test the heck out of them. Um, they get a much more rigorous set of testing than batteries used for like home energy storage, like a Tesla power wall kind of a thing. So a lot of companies now are doing second life batteries where they take the really high quality batteries of automotive producers that are discarded once they reach like 80% of their original battery life, because that's considered not good enough mm -hmm. already. But 80% is totally fine still for like a home energy storage system to support like a residential solar kind of system. So that's, that's out there as well, but it also faces challenges because batteries are not standard, right? So anytime you try to take an end of life thing and give it a second life, you're going to have a, a homogen or a, more like a heterogeneity. That's a hard word. Um, a lack of homogeneity <laughs> problem where the batteries are all different kinds and they all, you know, were used for different in different cars and you don't know what they were, you know, what was done to them or if they came from the manufacturing line and didn't even make it into a car because they just had a fault and they were thrown out. Like who knows what the fault was, right? And you get them from different suppliers. So imagine taking that whole mixed bag of dead battery or end of life batteries and then trying to make a standardized, you know, consumer electronic product like a Tesla Powerwall or a competitor to that, you know, and then having to put a warranty on that and make certain guarantees to your customer that they're going to get a thing that works and within a certain band of performance. Um, it's challenging. So any kind of recycling or reuse kind of story, whether it's batteries, whether it's plastics, whether it's metals, um, 
will face a lot of these same challenges. And so, yeah, that core processing has to work, the reverse logistics have to work and figuring mm -hmm. out the standardization of a non-homogenous feedstock have, have to work. Yeah, yeah, I'm sensing there, and maybe I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going wrong there, but uh, I'm sensing that uh, a little bit for the sticks and the, the carrot should be also uh, put in place to uh, enforce a little bit, maybe more, uh, even though I, I prefer that the system is uh, auto-managing themselves, but uh, I believe that, uh, you know, putting more regulation in place in there to enforcing and therefore increasing also the, the value of all of those uh, reused or recycled uh, uh, product at the end uh, should be probably uh, put in place at, you know, at a larger level. Uh, that might uh, help the market to uh, to take off and and go faster and overcome those uh, those changes. Besides uh, everything that you mentioned, help. yeah, yeah, it, it it could certainly help. I think our our view is we we invest on commercial, mostly commercial kind of aspects, and so if there is regular regulatory forcing that comes into play, all the better. Um, but it's very difficult to kind of bank on that. Um, and to, yeah. to know what the timeline is going to be as, as an investor, right? To 100%. say, oh, I'm investing here, counting on regulation coming in after a year, but what if it doesn't? What if there's a shift in yeah. government leadership and suddenly there's maybe a, a different political party that does not care as much about, you know, green initiatives and then they pull the cord on, you know, no pun intended, but pull, <laughs> pull the cord on. <laughs> on a lot of like you know green subsidies or incentives or regulations and and now you're like the whole thing is knocked back yeah. right and basically what i often say is one of my foundational assumptions with how we look at investing is that people suck um <laughs> that human beings kind of suck and you know the corporations and governments made of human beings kind of suck meaning that you can't count on people and companies and governments to do the right thing, right? You can only count on people and governments and corporations to be selfish and to make a decision to save themselves a buck, right? Um, yeah. to, to, to increase their own wealth and their own position of power, or whatever. And if that is your foundational assumption, then how do you invest? Yeah. That's that's what I, that's the question I always ask. So if you're introducing a sustainable way to mine a new metal, right? This is why those unit economics matter because you assume that the buyer is someone who sucks <laughs> and who is self-serving and just trying to make more money, right? And that money. Yeah, exactly. And so if you walk up to that buyer or that customer and say I can give you the same quality or better of your battery material, you know, or your other mineral. Uh, and I can do it for 20% cheaper, maybe even 50% cheaper than what you're paying today. Then that's, you know, that that's what's going to take hold much yeah. more so than waiting around for a fickle government to come around and say, you have to use more recycled materials in your products, right? <laughs> And then, and then the next political party comes in and the whole thing gets reversed, you know, and it's so, yeah, we've proven that humanity as a species does not just do the right thing. Unfortunately, that's the sad and unfortunate truth. The good news is, is we can invest around that. If we just assume that that's true, 
and we don't try to like suddenly change people to be Mother Teresa or like, you know, <laughs> like always, always trying to do, do right and do good. Um, then you just go with that flow, you know, like plastics is another good example where you're not going to fix the plastics problem by convincing people to recycle more. Right. Like, hey, throw it in that bin and not that bin in the recycling bin and not the garbage bin. Like, no, not not going to work. Right. <laughs> but you can develop something like a bioplastic that is naturally biodegradable in landfill and in the ocean. And then you just tell people, do your worst. Just carry on. Do what you've been doing. Throw it on the road. Throw it in the ocean. It doesn't matter. It's just going to biodegrade. Right. Like <laughs> that's that's our ethos of investing is don't don't count on people because people suck. <laughs> well, thanks so much. So let's go maybe uh, into uh, the more the specific that uh, at one venture. So you already uncovered the the story and the genesis uh, uh, led by uh, you know that led to the thesis with you and and Tom um, behind this. So maybe can you tell us a bit like uh, what do you offer to to founder that you invest in? I mean, what are the challenges that you see that are uh, usually at this earlier stage um, and uh, in the deep tech, uh, I would say like uh, uh, labeled uh, type of companies. So how do you support them besides uh, capital? I mean, what are the challenges that you see and how do you support them? That would be more like the, the reverse question. Yeah. So when we first launched the fund in 2020, it was just the three of us, right? Um, and we wanted to be really hands-on and really support. And we, I mean, we were, but in as much as three people can be. But after a while, we realized that we were only three people, right? And the portfolio grew to 10, to 20, to 30 companies. And it would be disingenuous for me to sit here and tell you that I'm incredibly supportive and hands-on if we were only three people in 36, 37 companies. Um, so we hired up a team. Um, and we just, we offer all these operational support resources to our portfolio companies for free now. We did um, basically like a survey monkey at the end of a year where we said, what are the things that you wish we could support you with more that we aren't supporting you with enough? Number one was hiring um, because with deep tech, everyone needs to hire engineers and data scientists and these really technical people that are really hard to find and really specific, right? So. I don't just want a data scientist. I want a data scientist that has experience making cement. Okay, that's very specific. <laughs> and I can say, I'm gonna go out to my personal networks and try to help you recruit, but I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't have a chance, right? Of finding you a data scientist that knows how to make cement. Like that's just, it's just way too specific, right? Um, and we have loads of like those kinds of requests coming from the program. So, so number one was recruiting. So we hired, a recruiter. And now she's um, our VP of talent and she's a full-time staff on our team. And she's dedicated totally to just recruiting for the portfolio company. She's a 30 years experience technical recruiter. That's all she does is find amazing engineers and, and technical talent. Um, and she's already helped find and place a ton of people at our, our portfolio company. So that was number one. The second thing they asked for was um, fundraising support. So we've now converted one of our deal team over to be completely focused on supporting them with fundraising, making investor introductions, helping polish pitches, um, the whole thing. And then the third thing was uh, marketing. And so we've also hired a VP of marketing, um, Anna, who's amazing. 
and marketing such a huge umbrella. So she is this like inhuman one person show that does everything under the marketing umbrella from pitching, you know, press releases to journalists, to putting together a go-to-market strategy, to thinking through a new, like a rebranding and a new image, you know, for a company and finding website developers, like everything. <laughs> um, and so through all of those, I mean, you think about each of those resources has hard financial value. Like if you were to hire a recruiter to hire one person, you'd probably pay them $30,000. And we offer that up for free, right? All you can eat infinite recruiting from our amazing recruiter resource. Same with um, same with our marketing resource, same with our fundraising resource. These are people that people typically hire and pay a lot of money for, um, and we just keep them on as full-time staff. We also have um, two entrepreneurs in residence that help with manufacturing scale-up that have lived through their own manufacturing scale-up journey. And so they're completely dedicated to helping all of our hardware companies with uh, with all like manufacturing issues. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that I'm providing- That's a lot already. Support, if I'm honest <laughs> with you, it's not me. It's it's actually the team. <laughs> yeah. It's always about a team, you know, there's a, it's never a one-man yeah. uh, one man show, that's for sure. Okay, well, thank you so much. So besides like uh, the mining sector, I mean, uh, which sector are the most promising for you today in terms of what I call the ICR or impact cash return? I mean, meaning building meaningful company uh, while creating mm. highly profitable business. I mean, any underdogs or subtextors areas that you're excited about right now today? Yeah. So um, I'm definitely a big like kind of underdog kind of person, right? Like, I always root for the team in the Olympics that like nobody thinks is going to win. And um, I'm a big fan of, of just like the underdog dynamic. And therefore, I think right now food is taking a beating, like all kinds of food and at food tech, ag tech. It, it was it was a bit of a bubble, you know, a couple of years, like kind of 2021 ish. And then it kind of burst. And now I feel like people have, the market has overcompensated in how punitively it is viewing all food tech and all ag tech and in this sort of blanket way, which also doesn't make sense because there's such a huge range, right? Within both food and ag individually. And so my my underdog part <laughs> is quite now pulled towards a lot of food tech and ag tech because they're just being beat up on so much you know by by the market um that i feel like it's it's they're, it's really underappreciated and and in financial terms it's being undervalued so it's actually like if you can find a company with good fundamentals that can ride out this storm and a strong team it's actually probably a really decent time to get in for cheap you know on a on a strong food technology or, or ag technology um, and also, it's a good time to, to dive deep and understand the nuances of why did some of the higher profile failures like Beyond Meat fail? And how are some of all these other companies that run the wide range differentiated from you know, some of the high profile failures? Um, and then how do you find those, those gems, right? Because having something that is B2B versus B2C is very different. Having something that has a lot of cool, deep biotech with a lot of IP in it versus something that's just kind of like a branding and, you know, marketing play is quite different, right? Um, having something that is 
you know, more upstream of a value chain versus downstream, also very different, right? So these are all the things that you got to like really tuck into um, and figure out like, okay, this is something that is truly fundamentally interesting, but just really undervalued right now because the whole market sector has just taken a walloping um, versus, oh, no, no, this is the kind of thing that is the reason <laughs> why the sector has took a walloping. And this, this yeah, probably deserves to get marked down like quite a bit. So yeah, we're we're taking a lot a, a long close look um, at a lot a lot of food and ag right now and rooting for them for the, uh, as the underdog to hopefully pull pull out of the downturn in that sector right now because it's a huge it's twenty six percent of global greenhouse gas emissions from food and ag, right? So it's Definitely. crucial for impact. On the other side, what is uh what was the the hype that you uh, don't want to go into uh, right now? I mean, taking the the other side of the of the spectrum. Uh, what are the maybe one or two sectors or subcategories that you are not excited about anymore or never been excited? Yeah. <laughs> that um, are more greenwashing and maybe, uh, you know, waste of uh, resource yeah. and, and time. And So I try not to be overly disparaging about any one technology just because, look, being a technology startup founder is hard right? No matter what you do. And every entrepreneur and every founder is brave. Um, and I applaud every one of them um, just for trying. <laughs> my my father is an entrepreneur and I should insert a carrot to say he's a serial failed entrepreneur. <laughs> um, and he's still at it, right? Like the man is 76 years old and he just launched his latest startup like a couple years ago, making domestic elevators for the elderly to get up their stairs at home. Um, so like amazing, right? <laughs> now, having said that, it does feel like there's a hype train that is a little bit disproportional around some technologies. Like there's a recent wave around generative AI now, right? And sure, it's interesting and it can be an interesting tool. Does that necessarily merit the wave of startups that are have now come out, right? All purportedly using generative AI in some super interesting way to like achieve something, you know, like, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> and maybe half of them aren't even really using real generative AI. They're just kind of using the buzzword because they know it's attracting attention right now. And so that that's the kind of hype that I, I, that I and we as a firm try to stay away from. Before that, I think crypto was another good example, the whole NFT craze and you know, I used to work in fintech in Africa and people used to joke, if you put the word blockchain or crypto in your company description, you increase your valuation by 20%, right? <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly the kind of thing we we don't want to happen. <laughs> so it's, you might find some good uses for, for crypto and blockchain. Most of the things that we look at, I think we could probably achieve the same ends without without needing to use crypto or blockchain, there's other other tools, right, that you can use to achieve those same goals. And crypto, especially with all the, the data mining, it actually has a strong carbon footprint with all the computing capacity that's required to, to, to do the mining of a lot of the, the crypto. Same for AI, yeah. Yeah. When you see so, the, I mean, it's in it. The computer, mm -hmm. I mean, like the, the computation needed for uh, AI, uh, it's also like, uh, to, oh, right. the, to mm -hmm. the roof I, I still believe that AI probably has like a lot to bring into the table in terms of like um, yeah. you know, climate change yeah. and, and, and new solution in different uh, sectors but 
uh, clearly understand not, your not the your hypey hype. version of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> if we meet a company that's truly, sincerely, right, using it in 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 a way that that drives value and creates, you know, a differentiated value proposition in some kind of industry, that's great. We'll definitely take a look at that. And we've invested in in some companies that have done that. Um, it's it's you know it's because we were talking about hype that I was kind of pointing to. There's a lot of companies that are just throwing that term around and. I got yeah, you definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's your uh, what's your personal view on the on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, what would you say to to people who feel demoralized uh, and angst, uh, mm. you know, getting so much anxiety and and panicked with all the visible consequences that uh, we have of climate change today? Are we doomed? We're not doomed. That's the first thing I would say for sure. Um, basically, I like to tell people to think about it on a spectrum of optimism and pessimism, right? And what you want to avoid is you want to avoid either extreme. If you're overly pessimistic and you think, oh, we're doomed, there's nothing we can do, it's over, you would end up in this sort of like, you throw your hands up in the air and you do nothing, right? Because you're just like, it's over, it's too late, we can't do anything anyway, and, then, and you give up and that that drives you to inaction and that's that's no good. Overly optimistic, while it's the complete polar opposite, actually has the same outcome, which is if you are overly optimistic and you're like, no, it's fine, there's no problem, climate change is real, like everything's perfectly okay, like it's nice out. You know, like that would also drive you to inaction, right? Because you think there's no problem. And so polar opposites, but same same problematic outcome. So then you got to figure out where on that sliding scale between optimism and pessimism you, you should land. And this is how I calibrate it for people in a couple of different ways. One is you can do a, a bunch of math and basically figure out that there are a number of pathways that will get us to the other side of the climate crisis, right? It's just, it's just it, it really is just math, right? There's X number of gigatons up in the atmosphere. There's, you know, like 50, you know, plus gigatons that we emit on a CO2 equivalent basis every year, right? And so, and then how much can we actually abate? How much can we draw down? What period of time can we do that in to stay below Paris target? It's, it's math, there's a whole, right? That's the whole field of climate science that's like kind of focused on that. When you look at that, you realize that yes, it is possible to get on the other side of the crisis, but there's actually a limited number of pathways to get there. And those each pathway is comprised of a whole bunch of little initiatives. Think about them as like stepping stones on the pathway, right? So maybe we got to crack steel because that's 8% of global greenhouse gases right there, steel production. Then we got to crack cement and that's like another stepping stone and that's another 8% of global greenhouse gas, right? Then there's like different forms of energy and, da, 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 and on and on. Now the issue is, is time. So we don't have forever. We only have maybe a few years, right? To get this all done. And so if we don't crack each of these little steps in each pathway quickly enough, then every year that goes by, we lose a pathway, right? Because the, the, the numbers just don't work anymore. And so the point is, is, is it possible to get to the other end of the climate crisis? Yes, it absolutely is. And, and there's actually multiple different ways we could get there. There's multiple pathways of different combinations of these different steps that we could use to get there. Is it easy? No. Is it incredibly urgent? Yes. Because if we wait, every day we wait, we're going to start losing another pathway and losing another pathway. 
And before you know it, there's only going to be 10 pathways left and then five pathways left and then no pathways left. Right. And so that's the sense of urgency. And that's why everybody should be like all hands on deck working on this, like right now. <laughs> right. Because we, we can get to the other side of it, but there's a very short amount of time and a lot of work that has to be done in a short amount of time to get there. That's the framing. So how can the community of uh, investors, founders, LPs, uh, experts listening to the show can uh, help you today? Um, everyone can switch into a sustainable career. <laughs> I mean, okay, joking aside, um, honestly, like one of the things I'd love to see the most is that we stop adding the, the adjective sustainable or impactful in front of things. And that that just becomes the mainstream thing, right? Like, I don't want to be called an impact investor because impact investing is a small subset of total investing. I just want all investing to be oriented towards driving some kind of impact. And you don't have to call it impact investing anymore because it's just investing. And all investing is that way, right? And every industry should feel that way. We shouldn't just be talking about, oh, this is a sustainable food company. This is a sustainable buildings and construction company. This is a sustainable energy company. Like, no, just take that adjective away. Stop thinking about it as an option, right? Stop thinking about it as a subset of what we do. It should be everything and it should be mandatory. And that that mindset shift, I think, is really the most important thing. Any question I should have asked you and I did not for this uh, first part of the interview? No, I, I think we were pretty thorough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Ellen, for your time, your incredible insight on the industry. I'm so excited to see so many brilliant people like you uh, putting so much time and effort to uh, move the world, the ball towards a, a better world. So thank you so much for being uh, with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.